Well, good morning. <clears throat> Glad to have you with us this morning. My name is Rich McKinley. I'm the executive pastor here at MCC. And we're continuing our series on 1 Corinthians. Um, before we start, I wanted to make a special uh, acknowledgement. Uh, we have uh, almost a birthday boy in the room, uh, Bob Townsend. Tomorrow, I believe Bob is, is your birthday. You back there? You back there? Okay. I said, uh, is it 92? 92? Yeah. Uh, a few, few years back. <clears throat> a few years back, Bob and I were having a conversation out in the, where our flower bed used to be, and he said, I got to go. I have to mow some old people's yards. <laughs> He's the man. <clears throat> well, this morning we're talking about a, a, a problem passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and it's difficult because of, of, of what it says and how it doesn't really flow with culture. It really hasn't flown with culture lots of times in, in hu human history, but there, there's a reason that it's problematic, and there's a reason we have to address it. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, design dictates function, right? So like if you were to build uh, a, a sunroom on the back of your house and it's all glass, right? It, it would look like an aquarium, but you, you probably shouldn't fill it full of water and put fish in it, right? It's just, it's not going to hold the weight. It's, it's not designed to function that way. But sometimes that doesn't stop us. Um, anybody in here ever use a screwdriver for a chisel? Anybody? Come on. <laughs> Come on, right? I, I was going to bring a, 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 a boxed-in wrench, 9 that I used as a pry bar, and those things will bend under duress. But you, you can use a pry And we all know pretty much everything you own can be used as a hammer, right? Right? But sometimes it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to because it wasn't designed to do that. It becomes a problem. Well, here in 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to get into um, a, a problem that has to do with design. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Paul opens up with a commendation. Hadn't done that since the very first chapter because, I mean, you guys have been here for some of the messages on the book of Corinthians. There were problems, issues, struggles, and they're getting a commendation. Why? Because they demonstrated the desire to hang on to the traditions delivered to them. Now, I'm not talking like fiddler on the roof traditions. I'm, I'm talking about Paul was referencing the apostolic teaching that that church had received. In other words, the, the, the beginnings of the New Testament scripture. He, he said that you're holding on to those things, and, and it was a, a big deal. And, and we as a modern church, we can't miss holding on to those traditions as well, regardless of what we see around us, regardless of what we see in, in other places of worship. The local church is not a DIY project. We don't get to decide on what we want to do with the bride of Christ. It's not up to us. We don't get to do whatever it is that we want to do. We are meant to be, here it comes, it's problematic. We are meant to be restricted, compelled, restrained by what we read in God's Word. It's supposed to create the boundaries that if we live with inside the boundaries that God has dictated in his manifest wisdom, everything works. But we don't 
like it because we want to do what we want to do. Well, living in the presence of God um, as his people, seeing him move and work as he wills is the essence of the church. And when we align our hearts with Jesus' hearts and our movements with the movements of the Spirit, that's what Paul is pointing to here when he says holding on to those traditions. We're not trying to take the pulse of culture and make sure that we fit in without causing any ruffles. We're not trying to do what seems like everybody else wants to hear. Jesus is not depending on us for new ideas. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And faithfulness, faithfulness to him is our only metric of success. So specifically, uh, in these next few verses, Paul is going to unpack a principle. And for us to understand it, we've got to get past the, the sentences and see what he is saying as a whole so that we can understand what it is to thrive in the life that God's called us to. Verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and that the head of every woman or wife in context is man, her husband, and that the head of Christ is God. I don't know how many times I've read that passage in the last several weeks. I've been reading Greek scholars and watching sermons on YouTube about this passage of Scripture, looking at podcasts, seeing everything I could see about this. It is the most debated topic in all of Pauline literature, like the, the things that Paul wrote in the New Testament. So much ink has been spilled on this passage, it is crazy. And I don't want to give a lecture today on um, what the Bible is meaning and saying. I want to engage your brain. And so we're going to do something a little different. We're going to try and navigate the debate and stick to the things that we can know that we know that we know. So there's a principle in biblical interpretation called hermeneutics that you can use a, you can interpret a less clear uh, passage with a more clear passage, right? So you understand uh, what that principle is and you can apply it in different places. <clears throat> That's what we want to do this morning. So the principle that Paul is talking about is headship. <clears throat> the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman or wife is man, her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And the word translated head here in the Greek is kephele. Kephele is one of those beautiful Greek words that has a meaning. And the meaning of kephele is head. You know, as in like the thing on top of your neck. Head. It's a pretty simple word. The question is, what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us in the use of this metaphor? A very popular move today, and, and even in our even in even in churches, is to do away with gender distinctions altogether. People take passages like Galatians 3.28 where it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. And they want to take that text and make it say that to our creator, our gender is now an invalid construct. Like I copied that from somewhere. For any functional differences between people. They want to ignore the context 
right? If you're going to read a passage of Scripture, you can't just go cherry-picking verses and make it mean what you want to twist it to mean. You have to understand what was in front of it, what's behind it, so that you can understand the context. And when we understand the context, we clearly see that they were talking about who is salvation available to. Short answer, everybody. There isn't a category you can find yourself in that salvation isn't available to you. And another problem with their misinterpretation of Galatians 3 is that in more than 50 uses of this word in ancient uh, Greek, outside of the New Testament, the word always carries the notion of responsibility and authority. So what do we do with this? How do we understand what we're talking about? Unclear with more clear. Here's the more clear. It's in Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 21. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head, kephele, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is an authoritative text. We're told that Jesus is the kephele of the church, the head. That means he governs, he oversees, he fills, he rules the church. And you know, <clears throat> we're, we're 100% okay with that. Jesus is the head of the church. He calls all the shots. But it's that middle line that really bothers us. It really trips us up when, it, when Paul says that the husband is the kephele of of the wife. I'm, I'm, I'm less good with that, right? That feels like positional leadership. That feels like in the pecking order, I just got bumped off the table. What does it mean? What, what is it that, that God is trying to tell us about this? Well, first of all, it, it's, it means that the church is like uh, a marriage, that it's not a DIY project, that, that God has an intended design for all of the institutions that he gives as gifts. There is a way it's supposed to work. Marriage and the church belong to him. They belong to him, and he has an intended design for them. If you were to go out and buy a new vehicle, the manufacturer has a manual that practically no one reads. <laughs> Sticking in the glove compartment, it's got recommended maintenance. It's got all these kinds of things. But, you know, you, you, you buy your new F-150 and you decide, I have got gallons and gallons and gallons of paint thinner. And that's combustible. Well, I'm just going to fill my truck up with paint thinner and run it. Do we see an issue? Somebody decided in advance the design for that vehicle and, then, and you and your want to and you and your convenience don't change the design, the intended use of, of, of that thing. It works one way. You have a God who has abundant life and is offering it to you. He says to give it to you th to the full. He is after the restoration of all things. So when he says got this full life and I'm going to restore things. I'm going to make it the way it's supposed to be. Don't buck up. 
when he has an intended design. We need to lean into it, not push away from it. We need to listen to him. So what is he saying here? Kefele. It's part of his good design. It's about headship. So let's define our terms, okay? Headship. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for the Christ-like servant leadership in the home and the divine calling for a wife to imitate Jesus in joyful submission to that servant leadership. In other words, it's a call for us to move away from apathy and laziness and distraction and move toward lion-hearted servant leadership that we see modeled through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's both for men and women. Headship has nothing to do with dominance or subservience. And it isn't saying that all men have authority over all women. This is a call for both men and women to imitate Jesus by exercising their God-given gifts together. In fact, I, I w- wanted to use a, a different word, headship, instead of leadership, because I want you to see that there's a difference between those, those terms. When, when we see leadership in the Scriptures, we see women leading all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. We talk about headship. This calls for males and females to be in different function. We're not saying that women uh, aren't to lead. You'd have to rewrite the Bible. In Judges 4, Deborah functions as a prophetess and a judge over all of Israel. We see Miriam in in Exodus 15 uh, listed as a prophetess. In the New Testament, we see women active in building the first century church. In today's text, we read about women praying and prophesying in in the church gathering. In Philippians 4, we see that females were contending for the gospel at Paul's side, facing imprisonment and all kinds of of hardship. In Acts 12, we see women facilitating house churches uh, as as the church was was starting. In Acts 16 and Romans 16, we we read lists of women who were instrumental in building of the early church. Same dynamics are present here at MCC. Some of the greatest leaders uh, we have in our church, and I'm not saying anything about our, our, our elders, I'm just saying and leaders in our church, women who are doing some phenomenal stuff. Some of the most gifted leaders I know anywhere are women. Some of the best ideas, some of the impactful things that get done or at least get done better are because of the hands of women that are involved. In fact, if there was a deficit in leadership at MCC and in most churches, it wouldn't be with women. It would be with, with men who weren't stepping up and stepping into the role that God's called them to. They, they won't even lead themselves, which is part of the problem where we see feminism coming up is, is men aren't doing their job. They're not doing it the way God has called them to do it. And so we're confused. Rosaria, Rosaria uh, Butterfield is a professor. Uh, she was raised as a feminist and grew up seeing any form of headship and submission as, as abuse. And she came to Christ And she started thinking about things differently. She writes, I really had to stop and think about things. And one of the things that I thought about is the theory of aesthetics, like how things look, right? The theory of aesthetics say that what is true, what is true determines what is beautiful and ethical. 
And man, our world has got serious issues today, right? They have strong opinions about what is true and beautiful and ethical. And the temptation for the church, the temptation for Christ followers to fit in, to go along without making waves and causing problems, is to adopt that standard. The problem is that standard is a moving target. It's a lie. And we continue to struggle. When we end up doing that, we we end up dimming the light of Jesus' love and the power of the gospel. Instead, we need to go toward Jesus and what he says is truth. We need to let that inform our perspective about what we believe to be true and beautiful and ethical. Only the truth of, of Jesus leads us back into God's light, his revealed truth, and we need to let him lead. We need to take ourselves out of the arrogant position of striving to build a life that feels like what we would prefer. Our world is running out of control with the authority of self. And the church needs to address that, not to put people into their place, but to help them understand the frustration that they're chasing, the the, the peace that they're looking for isn't going to be found anywhere outside of the kingdom of God. It's found in Christ. And so we look at this passage, this metaphor that, that Paul is, is painting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we see three, three things that help us understand what headship really is supposed to look like. First is a display of fidelity. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 6, it says, Every man who, who prays or prophesies with his head uh, covered dishonors his head, but uh, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same if her head was shaved. Or if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, then let her cover her head. Now the mistake that's being addressed in this Corinthian church was evidenced in their head coverings and their hairstyles. So what are, what are we talking about here? Do we need to get like shawls for everybody out in the, the lobby? And you know, what are we trying to accomplish? In a Greco-Roman world, head coverings were a way for a woman to show that she was married. It was a display of fidelity, so that other people could quickly see and identify she was a married woman. And so women who were shaving their heads or wearing their hair in different hairstyles or uh, not covering their head were communicating something about their sexual availability. It was typical behavior for prostitutes. So Paul felt the need to remind these young Christians that the world is watching and they're confused by what you're doing. So married women would go to the local gathering of the church with Uh, Their heads uncovered and their appearance would give the impression that they were available and it would dishonor their husbands. But not only dishonor their husbands, it would dishonor the design that Jesus had for his body because he is the kephele, the head, the authority of the church. So it wasn't about a piece of fabric on their head. It was about a display of fidelity, of covenant faithfulness. Jesus modeled uh, humility and submission, but the Corinthians were forgetting to put their covenant faithfulness on display. Instead, they wanted to show off their newfound freedoms and personal rights. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's like the world we live in, but it's, 
if, if you've been tracking with us through Corinthians, it sounds familiar uh, to the text because Paul's been addressing issues in chapter 8, 9, and 10. It's that same train of thought, just a different topic. He's moved on from food sacrifice to idols to uh, head coverings. The display of fidelity was missing And the Corinthians were running ahead with their personal rights and freedoms because that was the currency of the day. So what do we do do with this part? What is this display of fidelity? Is it our wedding rings? Is that what what we're talking about? It's bigger than that because, again, it's not just a specific thing. It's also a principle that men and women can get a hold of and and live a life that's changed by it. So the the more clear text, 1 Peter uh, 3, 1 through 4, wives... In the same way, submit yourselves to, the, to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, when your, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner spirit, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Again, clearly, we're, we're talking about married women, but the principle, I don't want us to lose sight of the principle as well. Fidelity is the action part of our faith, faithfulness. It's the things that we do. It's the thoughts that we allow to develop in our head. It's the way that we behave. Each one of us, display our faithfulness day by day to Jesus. And it isn't something you can accomplish on your own. At MCC, we talk about the definition of, of, a, of a disciple, someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, right? Committed to the mission. Being changed by Jesus. That's a thing that we want to be a part of. We want to be under his headship, and he's going to change me. He's going to change my mind. He's going to change my heart. He's going to do that through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. And I'm going to become a fisher of man, not because I want to, but because he makes me into that person. Day by day, as you submit to his headship, this is a life that will radically set you apart from the culture. People will notice you living different than them. They'll see your choices, they'll hear your words, they'll see your thoughtfulness, they'll see your focus and clarity of your life and your purpose, and they'll want to know why. God sent his son. Jesus, the son, sent his spirit. And you lack nothing to live the abundant life that Jesus has invited you to. Second Peter uh, one three. Jesus wants to lead you. Will you follow him? I'm not talking about surrendering in, in baptism. That is a first step. Your faithfulness is lived out by your second and third and fifth and thousandth step. The problem is who is at the center of our universe. Because if push came to shove and you had to really honestly answer that question, 
Who are you most concerned about satisfying, being comfortable, being liked, fitting in? All those things seem to point back to self. And when self is the center of our universe, we're always going to feel discontent. We're going to live in the margin and we're going to wonder where God went when it was me that moved. We talk about living on mission. I'm going to ask, are you committed? Are you faithful? When, 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 when there's an opportunity to speak up on behalf of the name of, of Jesus, when there's an opportunity to solve a problem, when there's an opportunity to step in and love and lead, do you? The world is dying to see somebody who lives like that. They're dying to see a marriage that looks like what we're talking about. As Christians, we were intended to be the antidote to the chaos that we see surrounding us. And when you prioritize the display of faithfulness to Jesus, you become a light in a dark place. When he leads and you follow boldly, you become quiet in a world that's full of people shouting. And you'll be noticed. Not because you're a better boy or girl, but because Jesus is changing you into a reflection of himself. So a display of fidelity, a design of creation. In verse 7, Paul starts back, A man ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. I'm just the messenger. <laughs> who, who have I ticked off so far, right? Um, these are hard to, to understand because if we just skim past them, well, sometimes we can't get past, I don't like that. That makes me mad. That makes me feel less. We have to understand the use of Paul's metaphor here about headship. Paul was not basing his, his teaching about headship on a specific context in the Corinthian church. He wasn't responding to the demands of the culture in, in, in the community that they were living in. Paul was going back to the design he saw in creation. He transcends culture and goes back to creation. He isn't looking for what they want to hear. He wants to tell them the truth. And before the fall, before sin entered the world, there was headship. Before sin entered the world, there was ordered equality. In other words, equality that existed because of an order, a structure. And Paul is saying the same thing in, in 1 Timothy while he's talking about headship in the church. He points to how we're to put that on display through male eldership. That's why at MCC, that's the only thing women don't do. It's because we said so, because our bylaws, no, it's the Bible. We're just doing what the Bible says. Now, that, what, what does that not say? Again, it's not about leadership or competency or hierarchy. It is an obedient display of fidelity to the design that God painted starting way back in Genesis 1. We're just going to follow. Tim Keller writes, We can affirm that each gender has a unique and non-interchangeable glory that the other does not. You know what he's meaning? 
He, he's trying to say that when God created man, it was not good. And so he addressed that. The Bible invites us to, to celebrate our differences as well as the things that, that we have in common. What Paul said in his text about woman was made for man can be so easily and seriously misunderstood and, and, and undervalued. I get it. The text is uncomfortable with us because it calls women out in some very real ways. It asks something of them that is, a, is an effort. It's a sacrifice. We're good with calling men out, right? Women give the elbow shot to the guys and then laugh and nod their head because we all know it's true, right? We just smile. But you call on women? Uh-oh, there's a reason I'm doing this and Mike's not. <laughs> Chicken, he's watching at home. No. <laughs> We're good with calling men out, but when we talk about women, we get, we get uncomfortable. Well, listen, friends, the Bible isn't uncomfortable about making clear the role, the purpose, the design, the calling on men and women, because guess who he made in his image? All of us. All of us. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Oh, I don't like that either. Helper. We read this word and we get the impression that it's like second best or second most important or second in priority or just second. We don't like what it says because of what it sounds like. Is, is God trying to say that man is better than woman and woman's just supposed to be his cheerleader? Then you throw in a few thousand years of male patriarchy and, and we look at the Archie Bunkers of the world. Some of you don't get that, but just watch, look it up on YouTube. <laughs> and, and, and no wonder we, we think gender roles are the problem. Here's the thing. Study your Bible. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Mike Tuttle's word for it. Don't take Eric Kraft's word for it. Study your Bible. You dig and read and reflect. And when you do that, you might find that the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 2, 8, talking about making a helper for the man, is a Hebrew word called ezer. Ezer. It's the same Hebrew word that God uses to describe his role in leading Israel. God, God said that about himself. I'm, I'm the helper for Israel. I'm the one that helps them get it done. Don't miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is called the helper, the Ezer of the church. This word isn't about subservience. This word is about strength and wholeness and the ability to finish. The call for the woman is to bring to bear her likeness of God. In our culture, and unfortunately a lot of churches are trying to remove gender distinctions. They're saying we're all exactly the same in functionality. They're saying God didn't know what he was doing when he said he made them male and female, and this is what it means. They're saying, no, it doesn't. And, and, and we're wondering why the world is spinning into crazier and crazier. And the chaos just looks like, are, seriously, we're having this discussion? This is the topic? Really? Of course we're having that discussion because we've thrown away the design. We're trying to use things for things that they were not intended to do. It doesn't work well when you don't do it right. 
We're not drifting closer and closer to God over time as progressives might want to lead you to believe. The Bible is very clear that the farther time moves, the further we get away from him. And we as the church need to stand on the authority of God's word, all of it. The uncomfortable parts, the, call, the parts that call me out on my behavior and my choices, we need to stand on all of it and teach the gospel in love with truth and grace. Three, there's a divine disclosure in this metaphor. In other words, there's something God would like to tell you about himself in this idea of headship. It is for this reason that a woman, wife, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Remember I told you I, was, I read a ton of stuff on this passage? Man, the scholars were all over the place. It ranges from pretty interesting, plausible, to that guy stayed up way too long and drank way too many Red Bulls. It's just crazy talk. Well, what, what can we, how can we reel it back in and stay in context of what we know that we know that we know? I, I can say this. All of heaven is watching. The host of heaven was there to witness Satan's fall, how he refused to come under the will and the kafele, headship, leadership of God, how he preferred his own way and wanted to elevate himself. They saw what happened to him, and now you and I are at the plate. What are we going to do? What are we going to choose? Do you see what's happening? Can we accept the truth of the gospel, humbly live in submission to the headship of, of Christ in our life and thrive, or will we live our own truth, the thing that works for you, and pay the price? Look back at verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, and that the head of Christ is God. Again, we focus on that middle line. The head of the wife is a husband. And we bristle, we have objections to it, but like push that down for just a second and let's look at what this passage has to say about Jesus. Divine disclosure. This is what, what can we understand and learn about God? It says that Jesus is the kefele of the church. But it also says that Jesus has Kefele. Jesus is the head of the church and submits to his head, the Father. In other words, Jesus is the example for men and women. He shows us what both sides of the equation look like. He lives it out so that we get it. It's not just, I tell you. He says, I'll show you. And so we watch and we imitate because the design works. Jesus is example for both men and women. He's not just uh, calling men to be great husbands. He's not just talking to elders or, or, or wives or women. He's talking about male and female. He shows the example of what servant leadership is supposed to look like. That's why elders in the church, husbands in the home are called to, what's the bar? Lay down your lives. Do you know why feminism exists? Because we didn't do our job, men. We didn't love and lead like Jesus. We need to step it up. We need to follow the example that Christ showed us in, in the Word. 
We need to love and lead like Jesus. There is no proper headship without sacrificing for those in your care. Jesus also was the one who showed us what submission looks like. Ladies, he submitted his entire will to the Father. Obedient unto death, headship existed before the creation of the world, and perfect community was the result. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It was perfect. It was lacking nothing. You know, they talk about Jesus couldn't imagine heaven. Yeah, yeah, he can. He's there. He's been there. Before the world was ever spoken, he didn't make us because he was bored or needy. He made us because he wanted to bless us. He wanted us to understand who he is so that we could give him the glory that he deserves. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. You see, we're designed to be interdependent. It works well when each part does its job. When I play the role that God assigned me, when I lean into what he asks of me as a man who's humbly following and trying to to do better today than I did the day before, I want to be changed. It works when we follow. He created us male and female, entirely equal in value, in worth, and in purpose, but diverse in our roles and our functions. And it's time for us as the church to celebrate the beauty of his divine call. I want to wrap up. You know, we get to the place in, in every service where we, where we do communion. And it's not just a box that has to be checked because you can't have church unless you do. It's, it's not what it's about. This is, this is about actually proclaiming the gospel until he comes. And so we recognize everything that we have that's good is a gift from him. In Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, are you with me? To reconcile to himself all things. He makes everything right. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, Jesus didn't ask us to do something that he wasn't willing to come and show us what it looks like. The decision this morning to the Christ followers in the room, the people who are watching who've already given their lives to Jesus, is will you follow? to the people in the room who are trying to figure out what that right way is, come to Jesus. His blood shed on the cross is the only way that we can be reconciled to God and have everything made right. And so we remember together. I want to pray, and we're going to take communion together. Father, we love you. And God, we're grateful for the work that you're doing in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would continue to to shape our hearts, to change our minds and attitudes so that we reflect the truth we see in your word. So Lord, put us in your word. 
Put us on our knees so that we can rely on you. We can count on your advice before we listen to anybody else's. God, right now, we celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf so that we might be sons and daughters. And so, Lord, we celebrate. And we thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. And so we recognize that Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he gave up his body and was obedient to death on a cross because he loves you. And so we remember. And we know that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so we hold fast to the fact that what I couldn't do for myself, Jesus was willing to do for me and you. And we remember. What a great love, Father, that you have lavished upon us. God, help us to follow you with our whole heart. Draw us closer to each other. Lord, help us to be burdened for our friends and our family, for folks who don't know you, that we would be mindful of our reactions, that we'd be mindful of our words and our kindness. Father, we would follow where you lead. We ask for help, God, because we want to honor you with our life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.